Hi, everyone. Welcome to Waste 360's Nothing Wasted podcast. On every episode, we invite the most interesting people in waste, recycling, and organics to sit down with us and chat candidly about their thoughts, their work, this unique industry, and so much more. So thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Enjoy this session. This was a recent keynote at our Global Waste Management Symposium in sunny Palm Springs, California. And just give a listen. It's James Little. He's Executive Vice President of Engineering and Disposal from Waste Connections. And he just has a ton to share. And the topic is how ESG, emerging pollutants, and new regulations are changing the face of landfill design and operation. And he goes into great detail about this and, and why it matters, um, especially since the majority of generated waste in North America still goes to landfill. Uh, so it really is a critical piece of the waste management infrastructure. But with that, he also talks about with the heightened attention that everyone is paying to ESG, emerging pollutants like PFAS and all the staffing and supply changes, challenges that we're all facing right now, he gets into why company leaders need to really challenge the status quo right now. And also while there are challenges, there's also opportunities that are ripe for us to take advantage of. So give a listen for yourself. It was really well received at the event and we hope you enjoy it as well. Jim Little has been Executive Vice President of engineering and disposal of waste and of engineering and disposal of waste connections since July 2019. Prior to that, from February 2009 to that date, he served as senior vice president, engineering and disposal, also at Waste Connections. And he's got a long and storied history across the waste industry, working at various play, uh, various companies, waste management, coming up from the regional level, and uh, has a background as a certified professional geologist. And he holds a degree in geology from Slippery Rock University. What a fitting place to get a geology degree at Slippery Rock University. Let's please welcome Jim Little. Good morning, everybody. It's really great to see everyone back here uh, together again. It's been a couple long years. Um, Mic problems, can you hear? Are we good? Are we good? Okay. Can everybody hear me? Excellent. Well, again, uh, I'm Jim Little, EVP of Engineering and Disposal from Waste Connections. Before I get started, I just wanted to take a few moments to thank people here, um, Waste 360 and EREF. I, I know there were some tough decisions to um, decide to have this conference two or three months ago as Omicron was creeping up on the rest of the country. Um, I would say by unanimous decree, the folks here last night thought that uh, we should all be here. And uh, again, I, I applaud the, the two entities for having this, uh, this event. I'd also like to thank my corporate team for helping me pull together this keynote and uh, some, of the, some of the slides and information and the rest of the Waste Connections team that's here that, makes, that executes and makes all of these things happen uh, day in and day out. So as, as Brian said, uh, you know, I've been at Waste Connections for 22 years as a post-collections executive. Before that, I was at Waste Management and Chambers Development Company in a variety of engineering and operating roles. Um, you know, 
I was fortunate to get into the industry at a time of great change, right? It was when Subtitle D was coming and Title V was being flushed out. And, uh, there's been no greater uh, opportunity or, or change in the industry since that time, since the, what, the late 80s into the, into the early 90s. You know, folks in this audience, Greg Sikander, Dave Vladek, uh, Kurt Schoener, all came into the industry at the same time. You know, I, I, I've got to say that uh, my friend Steve Menoff reminds me that uh, he got in before all of, all of us. That's, that's Steve up on top. Steve, when the 70s get here, you're going to get fired for safety violations. <laughs> and when you think back 36 years, you know, you wonder where Brian Staley was. Well, Brian, Brian wasn't yet ready for prime time. But what a cute little guy, right? No, seriously. So, um, look, this keynote comes on the heels of a great speech by Tara Hemmer from Waste Management just two years ago, where Tara talked about the forces that were driving regionalization, uh, not just in the landfills, but in, in the way that waste is managed. Uh, she talked about the influences of climate change, and particularly what waste management was doing around its uh, ESG initiatives. Since Tara gave that speech, Assets under management for ESG-related funds have increased from $1.6 trillion to $4 trillion and continue to grow as we speak. The interest from ESG investors and the investment community in general has gone up proportionally, right? We get questions literally at every conference, at every speaking session about what we're doing to address climate change, to lower our carbon footprint. So, you know, I know that all the companies in here are facing the same things, and this, this isn't necessarily the new part, but what I'm, what I'm getting at in this discussion is this isn't just about landfills. We're at a very dynamic period in waste management in, in the evolution of this business, and it's happening right now. Some of the things that we've talked about for a decade, like PFAS, well, that, the train is finally here, right? Regulation's hitting us, and we're starting to have to adjust to it uh, in design and other activities. And the, the, the next part is that, you know, a lot of the investors want more granularity in our disclosures about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And that's going to require some uniformity around the, the disclosure process. So I do think in the next couple of years, whether it's SASB or whatever, whatever organization out there takes the lead, we're going to have a more uniform and more uh, transparent disclosure of, of our ESG efforts. And I'll, I'll talk a good bit about that here today. For the engineers, practitioners, and policymakers in the room, I want to take the opportunity to focus in from the macro environment that Tara talked about to more specific things that we're doing to address the challenges brought on by climate change, emerging pollutants like PFAS, and the changing regulatory environment. This will be a little more of a roll-up-your-sleeves discussion about, well, not just about landfills, but about organics and about recycling, too. For the newer folks in the audience, I don't believe there's been a more exciting time to be in the industry since the enactment of Subtitle B, as I said earlier. This slide represents, it basically shows you that in 1988, pre-subtitled year, when it was being implemented, there were about 8,000 MSW landfills in the United States. 
and literally everybody in the space was scrambling at that time to figure out whether they could re-permit the sites, reline them, redesign them, and do all the things that were necessary to comply with, uh, with Subtitle D or close them. And what you see there is a precipitous uh, you know, closure without replacement cycle that occurred through Title V enactment in the mid-90s, and then a glide slope that continues down to today. One caveat, I look at the, the slides and the 2016 through 2018 data show a, a, a downward step function. I suspect that's more of a definitional thing and whoever was putting the data together. I, I really don't think that that occurred in the industry, but we're somewhere between 1,200 and 1,800 landfills, MSW landfills in, in the United States, depending on how you want to define it. I will tell you that small rural market landfills are under enormous cost pressure right now. We have closed or, or are exiting several um, small operating contracts as we speak, simply because the cost pressures are too much for them to keep up with the regulatory environment and the, ex the things that are required to do to run a landfill properly in the 2020s. Conversely, from a macro, perspective. I'll show you this slide. And several of you have seen this slide. It's talking about solid waste generation from 1960 to 2018, the last year that we had this data. And what you see is in the gray bar in the middle, the amount of waste disposed really hasn't changed much in the last 30 years. But what has changed is the number of landfills, which again is the regionalization that Tara was talking about two years ago. So while recycling has closed the gap from the increase in, in solid waste generated, the amount disposed in landfills has been very consistent through time and remains so. Um, again, this is all happening at a time when permitting new airspace is becoming more and more difficult, when uh, um, you know, environmental justice issues are starting to ri rise up and be become an encumbrance to developing new landfills. So it's an interesting trend, and, and um, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more as I, as I get further along here. But more recycling is a good development. So a few years ago, Waste Connection started to seriously evaluate our carbon footprint with an eye towards minimizing uh, that footprint in our carbon emissions. This next slide shows our 2020 carbon uh, footprint. And the, the very telling thing here is, is that the blue that you see, the, the dark blue, is our scope one fugitive emissions, and that's 83% of our total carbon footprint, which was 6 million tons of CO2 equivalent. Only 16% came from our diesel fleet and from the, um, the you know, heavy equipment that we run in our landfills and in our transfer stations and other facilities. I'm using this, you know, to demonstrate that, you know, when we were considering how to lower our carbon emissions, a lot of people, and investors in particular, ask us why we don't do more with our CNG fleet. And the answer to that comes out here in that the low-hanging fruit is clearly on the fugitive landfill side. And I'll get into a specific model and example of how we've looked at this and how we've gone in and, and reduced, made significant reductions in our carbon footprint of our landfills by changing operating practices.
So when we decided to set forth on this, we, we, we put together an internal team to work with outside advisors and determine what, where we could make the biggest impact. And again, that's obviously in this scope one fugitive emissions. As we expected, you know, every landfill is different. There was no one size solution that fit all. And at points in this conversation, you may think that I'm uh, promoting exposed membranes in the way I am, but not not so much. It's it, it's really a financial, a fiscal decision that uh, involves uh, you know the best use of our capital. Our efforts over a couple of years yielded an eight percent reduction in our scope one emissions even as our volumes disposed a number of landfills went up. Our initial efforts were certainly targeted in impactful options. Um, you know, so what I'd like to do is start to walk through a, an example of how we, how we did that. And the first is a, an exposed membrane slide at our Seneca landfill in uh, upstate New York. This is one of the biggest landfills in the country. Um, we went in, you know, probably I think we acquired the site in 2016 and immediately embarked on trying to ascertain where we would final close areas or final cap areas that had settled and put these geomembranes in where we had gas systems. Second slide is a similar slide of the, uh, another slope of the site. But you can see the effect of having the, the exposed covers on there and, and the gas system. So then the next con the consideration we get into here is a financial one uh, around closure. A lot of people in the audience are probably asking themselves, well, why don't you just cap these things when they reach final grade? And the answer to that is, is that in many, many cases, and Seneca is a great example, we have a waste column that's 250 to 300 feet thick. That waste column will settle 20 to 30 or 40 feet over two to five years post-closure. And putting that cap on oftentimes results in us having to peel the cap back off to either retrofit and fix it or to refill the area that uh, we had uh, you know, gained the airspace in. So this next slide, you know, this is our JED landfill in Florida, and one of the collateral benefits of the exposed geomembranes is limitation of uh, leachate from stormwater intrusion. This landfill sits south of Orlando and gets roughly 60 inches of rainfall a year. Um, these membranes have helped reduce the amount of leachate, control odors at the site, and helped our gas uh, uh, system uh, in that you know, the, the soil covers down there are extremely silty and sandy and we were really unable to, to pull on the gas system the way it needed to be to, to get the gas out of the site, frankly. So the, these membranes have served that function. And in some cases, we've even gone into interim grades where, that hadn't reached final grade. This is an inner cell slope and installed them uh, again in an effort to prevent erosion and to be able to pull on the gas system harder. Well, this gets a little trickier, uh, both from a financial standpoint and from a, a practical operating standpoint, because eventually we're gonna go back into that area and have to move those membranes around. Now I'm gonna get into the weeds a little bit more on an example of how we deployed capital and expense to facilitate the most beneficial outcome when considering the inputs for uh, what I'll call a theoretical landfill. 
Everybody's seen one of these, everybody has them. So if you look at the right side of the slide, that area has been filled, it's in post-closure, it has a cap, it has a gas system, it's settled effectively. And that side of the landfill generates about 2,000 SCFM and 50% methane and has a 95% collection efficiency because it's fully capped. Has very little air intrusion and really no leachate generation to speak of or, or odors and uh, that type of uh, sulfide emissions. Now as you move to the middle part of the, of the model, you see the area of the, the third that we had just filled and we have settling occurring there. We have a fully advanced gas system, and we have uh, a soil cover that's adequate. It's, in this case, there's no odors or, or a lot of leachate generation. And, you know, again, we'll give that a leachate or a collection efficiency of about 75%. And in the methane concentration of, say, 45, because we can't pull on it too hard. We pull in what we call balanced gases. That's nitrogen and other things that have to be removed in the RNG process. We'll get to, I'll close the loop on that discussion a little bit later here. But this area also generates 2,000 SCFM, and, and again, because we're not pulling very hard, about 45% methane. And by our egress calculus, that, that area, the central portion, emits 50,000 tons of CO2 fugitive emissions a year. Egrets is the EPA's greenhouse gas reporting protocol. The last third is being actively filled, as you can see, and there's no gas system there. It generates about 500 SCFM with zero collection efficiency. And according to Egrets, it emits 50,000 tons of CO2 per year. Now, if you're, if you're a landfill designer or landfill operator, the first thing you do is look at low-hanging fruit, right? So what we know is, is that we can reduce the fugitive emissions from the site by 25% simply by advancing the gas system into the active area and by making sure that we've got enough cover to you know, uh, qualify for, for a, a reduction of about 50% collection efficiency. So therein, we, what we've simply done is taken 25,000 tons of fugitive emissions out of our carbon footprint. We can improve that number by, by using some other soil covers and, and we can dramatically improve it by using exposed geomembranes. Soil covers are easy and cost effective as long as it's adequate to prevent odorous emissions. The exposed membrane is difficult because, as I said in my example earlier on JED, um, what you have is that you can put the membranes on, but you have to be able to move them around, and that becomes very unwieldy in a fast-moving operation, which most of these regional landfills are now. We're, our working decks are moving at acres per day, so the, the idea that you're going to put a geomembrane out there on, on that, that whole thing and try to track it and move with it is virtually impossible. And, you know, we've done it successfully at our LRI landfill up in the northwest, but it, it, it's a process and I wouldn't recommend it for most operators. Having satisfied ourselves that we're meeting the objectives in the active unit, we look to the recently filled back to the central third part of the site here. Again, assuming that there's no odor generation, which would drive us to make the decision to put a membrane on to prevent the odors, um, the next decision is, if we have RNG on site, is it worth the membranes, which might cost us 
60 to $70,000 an acre to enhance our gas collection and lower our balanced gas equation at the, at the plant. And oftentimes we find that it does. And so that's, again, another part of the analysis that's become landfills of the 2020s, right? This isn't something that many of us went through you know, five or 10 years ago. These, these weren't even thoughts. There's another consideration that I mentioned briefly earlier, and this is a very important one, uh, especially as we talk about closing the loop here, which I'll do when I start to get into the PFAS discussion. Um, again, this is a JED site, um, site. This is another view of the, the membrane that you saw on an interface slope, on an intercell slope that will eventually be filled again. But the consideration here was twofold. Um, what we did here was we, we put this in to keep leachate both from breaking out and from getting into the site. Again, the site gets over 60 inches of rain a year, so it was enormously wet to the point where it was causing dysfunction in the gas system. And then the other consideration that we had here was that when we acquired this site, it was one of the three or four highest emitters under egret in the United States. And it does three million tons a year of disposal. So that, that to some people that wouldn't be shocking. But when we really got down and looked at what was causing our egrets number and that emissions number, the carbon footprint of this particular site to be so high, it was an easy decision to spend several million dollars on both permanent caps and these, these membranes uh, around the site, as well as advancing the gas system, as I described in my little cartoon earlier. This site, we reduced the carbon footprint by 80% on a reported basis over a period of about three to four years. So it can be done. Uh, this is a great example of that. recycling a little bit here. Um, this wasn't going to be just a landfill talk, although I know that many folks are very interested in the landfills. And we'll circle back to close the loop again on, on all the, the things that I'm, I'm going to try to cover here today. Uh, the next wave to wash up on our shores, and that's pun intended, was National Sword, right? This is a point where China finally decided that it had had enough baled waste being sent there and could no longer you know, handle the, the commodities that were, that were being shipped uh, over, overseas. So it not only collapsed the fiber price here in the United States, in some instances there were no available mills to take the, the product at any cost and we ended up landfilling some in, in certain geographies. The industry and pulp producers uh, responded in two ways. The industry immediately imposed processing fees at all of our facilities to cover our processing costs and our capital costs. The pulp producers and paper mills have rushed in to fill the capacity void quite nicely. When you couple that with equipment innovation, you get where we stand today with a very investable and very robust recycling industry really are in a different place, I think, than we've ever been, at least in the 35 years that I've been in the business. We, Waste Management Republic, have all committed significant capital resources towards the highly automated recycling of the future. This is an example of a robotic arm uh, that's in, in use in one of our facilities. Um, these robots are capable of picking about two and a half times the amount of recyclable commodity that a, that a human being can do 
uh, in a quality control environment. We're upgrading many of our plants, uh, most of our major MRFs in fact, with both optical sorting and robotic technology as I speak for a number of reasons and, and I'll talk about some of those here in just a minute. You know, the, the, these sorters are adding value by reducing labor cost, they improve quality, they can track material by type, which is really important when you look at an EPR environment, and improve safety. You know, consider the impact of EPR for a second, extended producer responsibility. We've talked about that for a decade as a, as a you know, waste management uh, industry, and now it's really upon us, and, and it's, uh, it's a very good thing, I think, for the industry because it adds a very significant stakeholder and what we're seeing is it's resulting in markets and more recyclable products being put into the packaging industry. So again, as you try to rebundle all this, you take EPR that's happening right now, you're taking these great technological advancements that are occurring almost right in front of our eyes, and a changed business model that's a result of National Sword, and the recycling industry is really set up to be in a great place for a long time. Now, I'll segue from there, you know, just, I know this is a lot to chew on, so I'm trying to, to go a little bit slow here, but uh, segue into renewable natural gas. If most of you have been watching the headlines lately, you've been hearing about all the interest in our space around uh, building our own RNG plants. And so, the last 18 to 24 months has had a very significant shift in our thinking about renewable natural gas from our landfill assets. For Waste Connections part, we spent the better part of 22 years having uh, vendors, developers build and, and finance those uh, operations on our landfills. And for that, we got a royalty. And in many cases, we would get the added benefit of having investments in our gas system by those third parties to help uh, boost gas production. With the trajectory of low carbon fuel standards and RIN markets today, as well as ramped up renewable portfolio standards. These projects have become attractive investments for the industry players, including us. Um, Waste Connections and all of the major industry companies have recently announced major capital investments and partnerships for the development of significant RNG assets around their landfill fleets. An important part, and I'm trying to tie this back to uh, membranes for just a second, as much as I'm trying not to sell membranes. Uh, an important aspect of RNG development is the quality of the gas. It often determines the capital inputs and the operating costs of the processing facility. The primary function of the gas plant is removal of balanced gases and, and other contaminants that are in the gas stream and in the brown gas. These can be a function of the health of the gas system and the cover system that we talked about earlier, right? Um, you know, you can pull harder, get a higher quality of methane, and have less intrusion, um, the better your cover system and the more robust your, your gas collection system is. And again, that ties back to our cartoon landfill that we talked about earlier in those inputs. Another point that Tara made was that landfills serve a necessary purpose in society. Even as costs to design, build, and operate the landfills increase, they're still the most cost-effective way to sequester pollutants on a large scale. Enter this little devil, and the horns aren't part of the carbon chain, they're actually added for dramatic effect here. Um, 
This, this is PFAS, a PFAS molecule, and we've seen in print that there are somewhere between 4,700 and 9,000 different variants of this, this uh, carbon fluorine chain. Um, what makes this a forever chemical is the, the uh, bond between the fluorine and the carbon is so strong that it's got a very low solubility in nature. And so what happens is, is that uh, by intent, this thing's designed to resist water, right? And it's in many, many products that we have and we dispose of daily in this country. Uh, it's in Teflon pans, it's in firefighting fluids, it's, it's in the carpets that we walk in in here. So this next graphic shows some of the concentrations found in our food supply. Um, this has been out there for a while, so it won't surprise any of you, but if you look at ice chocolate cake, it's 17,640 parts per trillion PFAS. And we're trying to clean up our effluents to uh, a, a surface water discharge standard of seven to 15 parts per trillion. So let that soak in for just a second. Everybody in this audience has some form of PF in, in their blood serum, in blood concentrations. Um, now the, the good news around this is, is that we've taken a multi-pronged approach. The, the, the regulators have started to limit the use and development of uh, PFAS, PFO. And so in, in testing, uh, the concentrations in human blood serum appears to be declining and in certain environmental testing that's been done, although that's, that testing is still quite limited, uh, it also appears to be uh, on a trend line down. Is that enough? No, I, I, I don't think so. So, you know, again, it's, it's taking a multi-pronged approach, but downstream in the consumer chain, we're putting the material in our landfills with the intent of sequestering it from the biosphere. My first challenge to scientists and engineers in this room is to better understand how effective landfilling is and how significant migration pathways such as stormwater, landfill gas, and leachate can be uh, for PFAS to get out of the landfills that we have. And I know that the industry is working very, very hard on it. I know that EREF has put a lot of effort into it in the last few years with researchers and it's really a, a challenge for this industry right now to be able to characterize and define how that ecosystem works. And as drinking water and surface water effluent standards continue to develop, meaning shrink in this case, we expect pu publicly and privately owned treatment works to become less and less available. It is one of the factors that my group at Waste Connections is developing on-site treatment and disposal options for leachate, again, attempting to close the loop, make us less reliable on POTWs. Right now, we're looking at several solutions. In some cases, we're utilizing old techs, and we're taking old plants and bolting on new technologies, and, and in some cases, we're building them with placeholders for what we hope are emerging answers to, to these problems. Some are developing injection wells where we know the geology is conducive. And finally, we're using passive and active evaporation on certain sites. This is a picture of a Skagen uh, evaporator. We have several of these located around the country that operates in conjunction with leachate treatment and uh, the management practices on, on site. 
What we're not doing is large-scale recirculation. That's not a solution. It's a bitter lesson learned by many practitioners in this room, including me. Now comes my second challenge to vendors and researchers here in the room. We need more cost-effective and scalable treatment technology, and we need it fast. Several entities here I know are working on that challenge, but it may not arrive at a time and scale to answer the bell for us and answer the problems that we're having. Um, so again, this is, a, this is a really big challenge for the industry, and I, I can tell from the heat map that was up earlier that PFAS was on everybody's mind, and I guess if I had to answer the question, what keeps me up at night, it's not necessarily PFAS, it's leachate in general. Now I want to take a minute to, to transition from uh, you know, the, the PFAS sequestration discussion into a carbon uh, sequestration. This is one of our landfills and you know, as climate, as climate change and carbon footprints demand more and more attention from investors, the topic of carbon sequestration comes up. Carbon sequestration is simply the ability of a landfill to capture carbon molecules and, and keep them trapped uh, into perpetuity in, in that landfill. Um, you know, Mort Barlatz at North Carolina State and others have documented that a large proportion of hemicellulosic and lignin carbon molecules become entrained in the landfill and, and uh, effectively sequestered. I've seen this firsthand in, in my work experience. Uh, back in Western Pennsylvania in the early 90s, we uh, exhumed several old landfills that dated back to the 1920s and 30s. And in that exhumation process, we could literally take newspapers that were dated from 1930 and, and pick them up and read them. They hadn't aged a day. It, it was really incredible. And other wood products that were in there looked as if they were put in there the day before. So we know that carbon sequestration is real. It's fairly well documented. And, and again, I've seen it firsthand. We talk about what a landfill is, and you know, again, the purpose is to sequester harmful pollutants, and that, that includes carbon, and that's why we've got to be part of the climate change discussion. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of folks ask us about our carbon footprint and our disclosures, and so we, we, in 2020, we identified 6 million tons of CO2 equivalents in our footprint. And we also identified 12 million tons uh, of carbon sequestered in our landfills. I know that my peers here have similar anecdotal uh, disclosures. So, you know, it's happening. Um, one of the things that's happening is we're getting asked questions by people, well, why should that count against your offsets or why should that count as anything? And in our response, my response has been to them, look, Take your purest hat off for a second. What happens if we stratify the waste stream and we take all that stuff out and we compost it? My carbon footprint goes up by 12 million tons. It literally goes ton for ton because I'm putting that carbon back into the carbon cycle. I'm not trying to advocate either way. It's just food for thought around people who don't want to consider carbon sequestration in landfills as part of the overall climate change effort. Now I'll move on to organics and digesters for just a second. 
The past 24 months has seen a significant push to develop digesters in the U.S. Several well-funded and experienced players are developing projects around agricultural organic byproducts and a brown bin institutional waste business. Digester technology is fairly well developed. It's been around for many decades. There's some permutations and variants that, that folks come up with from time to time and you know they're, they're, they have their applications in their place. You know, legislatively, really only California has a, a universal landfill ban in place and that's for larger institutions and, and um, you know, other producers, commercial producers. We are seeing state governments start to follow that track and places like New York City with the bid that's coming up is attempting to also you know, divert the waste stream towards, uh, towards AD technologies or, or other uh, organics platforms. Much like recycling, there's a regu regulatory driven interest, but the base business struggles to compete with landfills due to initial capital costs and scale. Much like our renewable natural gas projects that I was talking about earlier, the LCFS and environmental attributes contribute to making these investments more sustainable. Waste Connections is in the process right now of reviewing AD development in order to provide service in, in several specific markets. Um, we did our first project in San Luis Obispo back in 2015. Um, this is an HZI um, dry digester. It has the capacity to do about 35,000 tons a year of mixed organics and uh, produces a megawatt of electricity. So in closing, I'll try to repackage this. I unpacked all of it, so let me try to put back uh, a little bit of a vision of the future here. Now I'm going to warn you, the last time I tried to do this was in 1995 in Columbus at a Swana conference. Back then, I told an audience about this size that I thought landfills were going to become public utilities. So that was a serious swing and a miss. <laughs> now I'm 27 years smarter, right? So let me try this again. I, I think it'll continue to get harder to permit new airspace and existing sites. The implications of environmental justice and uh, you know, uh, climate change regulations that are being layered on add complexity to an already very complex uh, environment. These challenges in combination with regulatory and cost pressures will accelerate regionalization towards larger landfills. I see landfills being developed as gas production facilities, not meth managing methane as a byproduct mainly through deploying synthetic covers and aggressive expansion of gas collection systems. In so doing, we'll be reducing our, fug our fugitive emissions while maximizing renewable energy from the sites, with the exciting collateral benefit that we'll be reducing leachate and odors while we're doing that. Now comes my third and final challenge. Our current methane emissions estimates are just that. Their estimates based on models that appear to have significant shortcomings. The industry needs to develop a direct measurement capability. We've recently seen satellite and drone-based technologies that are encouraging. Some have presentations here this week, and I would uh, implore you to pay attention to them. And, and really, as an as a industry, this is something that's fairly important to us to, to figure out how we can do that and then work with the EPA and regulators on getting migrating away from the, the models that we know are flawed. 
Um, the advanced digesters will continue, particularly for agricultural waste streams. That's going to happen very quickly over the next few years. And the trajectory, I can't really predict, but I think it'll look like a mirror image of our landfill bar chart that we put up earlier, where we had the 1988 descent into, call it 1800 landfills, and then a trend down. I think if you mirrored that and flipped it, the next five to 10 years will look like that for digesters here in the United States and probably Canada. I think that that trajectory is gonna go up to the right. There's a lot of funding out there for qualified projects and there's some very qualified people in the space now that are, that are out there and, and uh, it's got a lot of momentum. I know it's got our attention. Recycling markets will continue to expand with ERP bringing a large stakeholder group to the business model and I expect the recycler in the future to run with a fraction of the current workforce. I hope that the technological advancements that we've seen in the past five years around recycling continue. Um, you know, it, it's all good and if there's one thing that you can take away from this, uh, again, my excitement about this is, is that the change is all happening right now. This is, it, it, we're not talking about something that's going to happen five years or ten years from now. We've been, it, the, the industry literally came out of subtitle D and sort of moved sideways or along for 20 or 30 years. Sure, we had issues, but there's been no time for practitioners, engineers, scientists like there is right now with all the change that's occurring in our space. So for that I'm excited and I think we're going to have a very, very sustainable industry going forward because of the change that's happening right now. That's my keynote. Thank you for listening. It would mean the world if you would take a moment to rate or review this podcast. And if you share it with us, on one of our social networks, we are giving out some fun, nothing wasted podcast swag. So just tag us and see what you get. Thanks so much.